I'm happy to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Henry Weinstein. Mr. Weinstein is a founding member of the faculty of the University of California, Irvine School of Law. He holds a joint appointment in literary journalism and law. Prior to joining the faculty there, Mr. Weinstein was a reporter at the Los Angeles Times covering legal affairs and labor issues. In his career as a journalist, Mr. Weinstein has written over 3,000 stories and reported from 36 states for the LA Times, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and several other newspapers and magazines. He reported with two Pulitzer Prize winning teams at the LA Times, and he is the recipient of several awards, including the John Chancellor Award for Excellence in Journalism. We're very proud to have Mr. Henry Weinstein here. Please welcome him. Thank you for the kind introduction, Gregory. Uh, for me, it's a, a distinct honor uh, to be uh, here to talk to Justice Carlos Moreno. And let me uh, first say that uh, after spending uh, 30 years as a Los Angeles Times reporter, it's nice to be back in downtown Los Angeles and very close to Philippe's, where I always used to go as a boy before we took, got on the train at Union Station. Justice Moreno, to say the least, is a distinguished jurist who understands both the importance of intellectual rigor and empathy. And he is a man of, <laughs> yes, empathy is, uh, empathy is one of my favorite words. <laughs> and he is a man of honor, which he has demonstrated both on and off the bench. Some of you may have only recently gotten familiar with Justice Moreno. In two respects, he's been in the news fairly high profile recently. One, he was on the short list for uh, President Obama's first nominee to the United States Supreme Court, and he was the sole dissenter in the uh, decision issued by the California Supreme Court earlier this year upholding Proposition 8, which uh, banned gay marriage. <laughs> Justice Moreno has been doing newsworthy things for many, many years, however, um, starting with the time when he was a, a young city attorney here in the, in the mid-70s in Los Angeles, then going on to being a very successful commercial litigator. And then he's, he had four judicial posts, the first two on the municipal court and the superior court. He was appointed by two Republican governors. George Duke Majin and Pete Wilson, and then after serving on the state bench for more than a dozen years, Democratic President Bill Clinton nominated uh, Carlos Moreno to be a United States District Judge here in Los Angeles, and he was confirmed by a vote of 96 to 0. There aren't many people that get confirmed 96 to 0, particularly in that era, which was very fractional. There were others of his colleagues who wound up having their nominations held up for two, three, four years. After serving on that court with distinction for three years, um, Justice Moreno took what I think many would consider to be something of a risk. Gray Davis, the then Democratic governor, asked Judge Moreno to serve on the California Supreme Court. Now, obviously, serving on the California Supreme Court is a great honor, but there's one very big distinction between being a federal judge and being a California Supreme Court justice. Federal judges have lifetime tenure. 
if you are a California Supreme Court justice or any other kind of judge in the California system, you have to face retention elections. And you may face a retention election not long after you have issued a controversial ruling. We'll talk a little more about that later. Justice Moreno is a lifelong Angelino. He grew up within two miles of here, and he attended the very first game ever played at Dodger Stadium in 1962. <laughs> he attended local public schools near here, um, and during the summers, he worked at uh, his father's wholesale produce business. Both of Justice Moreno's parents immigrated to the United States from Mexico. During his early years, Spanish was the dominant language spoken in his household, and when he got to kindergarten, Spanish was the dominant language that he spoke. But he soon mastered English. He became a very good student, and with the encouragement of some good teachers, particularly at Lincoln High School, not far from here, he began to aim high and got admitted to one of the nation's most prestigious universities, Yale in New Haven, Connecticut, where he did well, graduated with political science degree. He came in 1970, he came back to Los Angeles and worked for two years in the welfare department and after that he then went to Stanford Law School did well there and came back to Los Angeles. He's clearly a man who feels very rooted in Los Angeles. As I say, his first job was with the city attorney's office, then private practice, and then on the bench. And even though the California Supreme Court's principal headquarters is in San Francisco, Justice Moreno has retained his primary residence in Los Angeles, and as I recall from a conversation that we had, he stays at a little hotel near the court when he's up there working. <laughs> Justice Moreno is married. He and his wife, Christine, have three children now, two children that were born to them, and in an act of, I guess I would say, courage and also menschhood, they adopted a autistic, a severely developmentally disabled child, um, issues of children have played a very prominent role in uh, Justice Moreno's life. He's done a great work, a lot of work on foster care issues, and he's the chair of a state blue ribbon commission on, uh, on uh, foster care now. Justice Moreno has been praised by people on all sides of the ideological spectrum for his finely crafted well-measured opinions. And I thought it was particularly interesting just a couple of months ago when uh, Justice Moreno's name surfaced in the uh, Supreme Court sweepstakes, which eventually were won by Sonia Sotomayor, um, that uh, there was a very nice profile written about Justice Moreno by John Schwartz of the New York Times, and uh, who talked about how widely respected Justice Moreno was, and that what a good eye he had for telling details in cases, one of which I'd like to cite. It was actually a case that I wrote about myself some years ago where Justice Moreno had to write three very complicated decisions that came out on the same day about the rights of lesbian partners, and one of them had to do with child support after a lesbian couple had broken up. And the lower court opinion said uh, that the, that the woman who was stayed with the child was not entitled to child support. That was a decision that was reversed by the California Supreme Court, an opinion written by Justice Moreno, and it's a case called Emily B. versus Alyssa B. And as 
there was a very complicated weaving together of facts about family law and so on and so forth, but Justice Moreno found one thing that was particularly noteworthy. He talked about early in the, or at some point in the relationship where Elisa B. had put a tattoo on herself saying, uh, poor Emily for Bita, meaning that it was for life, and so that was a sort of touchstone for the California Supreme Court saying, you know, that this woman still had responsibility and needed to pay child support to the children who were left behind. So with that, as a, I'd like to start by asking Justice Moreno if he would to compare the process of getting confirmed for a position on the California Supreme Court, where I believe your hearing lasted about 45 minutes, um, and uh, compared to... Uh, what's going on with U.S. Supreme Court nominations where they become these pitched battles where the sort of metier seems to be to say as little as you can about anything. Well, thank you for that uh, very gracious and very generous introduction, Henry. It's not going to get much better than this, is it? So can I leave now? <laughs> but seriously, I mean, to answer, answer your, your, your question, you're, you're right that the uh, confirmation for a state appellate judge is, is much less uh, contentious and less uh, political than what we've seen in the past uh, few weeks with the uh, Supreme Court uh, confirmation process. But I have to say that prior to being, well, after the governor suggests your name to the state bar, there is a very rigorous evaluation period where uh, thousands of evaluation requests are sent out uh, to lawyers throughout the state and throughout the county. There's a very intense evaluation process, uh, interview process, and, uh, and a rating uh, given by a com special committee set up by the state bar. And it's only after that uh, that uh, one goes through the rather perfunctory confirmation process you've described. Uh, in, in contrast, uh, I think because of the high stakes in particular in a Supreme Court uh, nomination, the uh, process is more highly political. It is intrusive, it is intense, uh, and uh, a complete FBI uh, check uh, is done on, on the candidate. Your neighbors are interviewed, uh, college roommates are interviewed. Everywhere that one has worked or lived is confirmed from the time you were 18 to the present. So there's quite a, uh, a lengthy uh, historical investigation that's done on, on the candidate. And that's not even to mention the kind of uh, scrutiny and questions that the candidate gets before the Senate Judiciary uh, Committee. Now, I was very fortunate uh, in that uh, in 1997, uh, when I had my federal district court hearing after going through the FBI investigation and, and so forth, that there were five other, four or five other candidates with me before the Senate Judiciary Committee, who you just saw uh, in the last couple of weeks with Judge Sotomayor. A handful of questions were posed to, to all of us, and uh, I think we answered them all satisfactorily, and I got out of committee you know, rather routinely and onto the floor and, 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 and was confirmed. Uh, but as you know, the process for a Supreme Court appointment uh, since uh, Judge Bork experienced uh, uh, quite a horrendous uh, hearing uh, process. I think that was in 1986 or so, probably at least 20 years ago. Uh, that's when the whole process became so intensely uh, political. 
people would come out of the woodwork to uh, uh, comment on your uh, qualifications or disqualifications uh, for the position. Uh, senators increasingly took uh, positions not so much to discredit the candidate, but really to expound their political uh, views and ideologies. And I think that's what we saw with the confirmation hearings with Judge Sotomayor, because clearly she was uh, mainstream in terms of her jurisprudence. She was eminently qualified in terms of her academic record, her professional record uh, as, a, as a lawyer and as a, as a judge. So I think what you saw in the hearings is really just a sounding board. Uh, it's not about you. It's really about all the other issues that they wish to bring to the surface. So unfortunately, it's become a highly political uh, process. Now, I believe you are the third Latino mm -hmm. to serve on the California Supreme Court. And Judge Sotomayor, if she is confirmed, and she just got out of the Judiciary Committee yesterday and seems likely to be confirmed, will be the first Latino ever to serve on the United States Supreme Court. Could you talk a little bit about your thoughts about, is diversity on the bench important? And if it is important, tell us, tell us a bit why about you think it's important. Okay, I think it's extremely important if, uh, in the first instance, if only for the sake of the appearance uh, of justice. I think, uh, you know, having served on the trial court here in Los Angeles for 15 years and having served in, in Compton and in downtown Los Angeles where the vast majority of uh, people appearing in front of me were people of color, I think it says something about the system uh, when you have someone, uh, either a woman or someone, a minority member, whom the people appearing in front of those judges can, can relate in some way. I mean, historically, the judicial system, not only in California, but throughout the country, has been uh, very, very segregated. That's changed, uh, particularly in California. Uh, so I think just the sense of the public buying into uh, the system and uh, having uh, trust and confidence and faith and in the integrity of the system, I think having a diverse judiciary goes a long way. But I think from another perspective, from a substantive perspective, I think that it's important to have a multiplicity of views uh, on, the, on any court. And I'm not just talking yeah. about a multiplic multiplicity of, of, a, of, a, of a racial composition, uh, but gender as well, economic uh, and social background and so forth. You know, in our country, we really honor uh, having a multiplicity of views and, and deciding virtually anything that we decide to go about. We think that having multiple perspectives is a good thing. I think the aspect of race as one demographic is just really one component of having a multiplicity of views. Uh, I don't think in any way it, it signals that a minority judge or a woman judge for that matter is gonna prejudge a case that may entail some of the same characteristics that that uh, judge sort of has lived. Uh, so. Uh, my, my sense is that we would get, I don't want to use the word better because that got Sonia Sotomayor in trouble. Right, uh, right. Because she was comparing her, you know, right. the views of a wise Latina. Right. And I saw Nancy here somewhere with a, here with her, she is with the wise Latina t-shirt. <laughs> She's from the neighborhood, by uh -huh. the way. So, uh, Very good. But I think, you know, I don't think anyone would really have any, any significant quarrel with the idea that we want a nice mix of people making these very right. uh, life-changing uh, decisions. So that's my feeling about diversity right. on the bench. Good. Same thing goes for juries and lawyers and everyone involved, the police force, 
everyone involved in the system, but I think it helps people buy into the justice system. Right. One of the things that I found curious about the most recent set, about the Sotomayor hearings, were to listen to some of the discussion, the questions and so on, you would have thought that being a judge was like doing a very simple math problem, like mm -hmm. two plus two equals four. And I was thinking about this last night in particular when I was thinking about what I was going to ask you, and I mm -hmm. was reading a decision written oh, in the early 80s by uh, Justice Stewart, a moderate judge appointed by President Eisenhower that had to do with a complicated issue about right to counsel. And the basic standard was the questions of due process of law and fundamental fairness. Mm -hmm. And Justice Stewart said something that I thought was very telling. He said that the, word fun the term fundamental fairness is a term whose meaning can be as opaque as it is lofty. Mm -hmm. And it seems like that tells us that just saying the law is the law doesn't tell us much, and that being a judge is not like doing a simple math problem. Right. Well, I, I, I obviously agree, and I disagree with Chief Justice Roberts, who, when he was testifying before the same committee, said that he would be an umpire calling balls and strikes, and that's completely the opposite of what judges do, and actually what we expect judges to do. We expect judges to insert a human element to look at the individual, and, and, and none of us are composed of binary numbers and so forth. We all have life experiences, and a judge has to take all that uh, into account. Someone also using that metaphor of, of uh, calling balls and strikes uh, told me that, yeah, but judges also determine the strike zone. So, so Professor Carlin from your law school uh, alma mater. Okay, well, yes. I mean, I've heard that metaphor before, and that's certainly uh, very true. There, there are judges who in my experience, will be more strict in how they construe a particular statute or how they construe a particular sentencing issue. There are others who will be more empathetic, uh, who will bring something else uh, other than, other than a formula. You know, in the, in the federal system, uh, when I served as a federal judge, we had the federal guidelines that in many ways restricted uh, the sentences that could be imposed by the trial judge, and it was dependent upon the, the criminal history uh, on one axis uh, of the defendant and the other on the elements of the offense and any aggravating factors and so forth. And sure, you could sort of put those into a computer and sometimes I think the probation officers would do that and you'd come out uh, with a sentencing range. But fortunately, there was some element of discretion allowed to the judge if the judge, he or she, made a record as to why they were departing, either upwards or downwards. Now those guidelines are no longer uh, mandatory, they're just suggestions. And I know many of my colleagues when I was on the, on the federal bench uh, really uh, complained about having those guidelines and now I think their discretion uh, has been restored. Yeah, some federal judges even quit. They quit, Over sure. the guidelines. Right. They thought they were so restrictive. Right. Speaking of the, the really, among the really grand terms of law are equal protection mm -hmm. of the laws under the 14th Amendment you know, enshrined both in the state and California constitutions. Obviously a term that means a great deal to you because you, your dissent in the most recent case on Proposition 8 um, said that it was a, a violation of equal protection. Could you just talk a little bit about how you arrived at the decision, what you think equal protection means, particularly in this context, and sort of where you see the law going in this area? 
Well, you know, to put it simply, and I don't know if I said this in the opinion, but this is certainly what I was thinking. Uh, you know, the two components to equal protection, there's equal, and equal means equal, not less than equal. And it means it applies to all people. And the history of equal protection in our jurisprudence really deals with protecting uh, disfavored minorities, going back to Caroline Products footnote four that we all studied in law school. I don't know how many lawyers there are here, but the whole idea of having, of, of conferring that kind of protection on disfavored uh, classes of, of people is really how equal protection has evolved over the years in the United States. So in my view, to, to chip away at the concept of equal protection in, 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 in when, when analyzing human relationships, intimate human relationships, it's something that you can't do because uh, the, the majority opinion says that they're making a limited exception to equal protection. Well, if you're making a limited exception to equal protection, then you no longer have equal protection. And my view, that, in my view was that that concept of equal protection is so, so enshrined in our Constitution. And given our ruling in the, 19, in the 2008 uh, marriage case, where we found that um, gays and lesbians were suspect classes, and that really was the landmark part of that case, because no other court had made that determination. T tell the, t let me just tell the audience what a suspect class is, because not everybody may be familiar with that term. Over the decades in our jurisprudence, certain uh, classes uh, like race and ethnic origin and nationality have been conferred special uh, status, special protection. Uh, and they're very, very limited. In fact, the U.S. Supreme Court has not sought really to expand those protected uh, classes. Even gender doesn't fall into the, the very special protected class mm -hmm. that would engender strict scrutiny, and if you are going to make a, a distinction, you need a compelling government interest. So really the landmark uh, basis of the marriage uh, case was to find sexual orientation as a class, as a suspect class, entitled to, to strict scrutiny if there was any kind of uh, distinctions being made between gays uh, and, and non-gays. I mean, that's putting it uh, very, uh, very simply. So. Uh, in my view, given our court's ruling from 2008, uh, conferring that status on sexual orientation, to then say that uh, under an equal protection analysis you could have a limited exception on what the whole battle was about, and that was the denomination of marriage, as we have here in California, a Domestic Partnership Act that confers essentially the same rights and obligations as, as marriage. So the whole argument was about marriage and the whole decision was about that. So to back away from that, uh, I thought required uh, a revision of the Constitution and not an amendment as my colleagues uh, found. I mean, it's a close issue and I think reasonable people can, can uh, disagree on, on the, the right approach and what the right answer is, but uh, in my mind, uh, this was so significant a distinction that the majority was making that I couldn't really uh, accept it. Until 1967, there were 16 states in this country, all in the South, where interracial marriage was prohibited. And that year, the Supreme Court, um, in an opinion written by uh, then Chief Justice Earl Warren, unanimously struck down. It wasn't Warren. He wasn't on the court. Oh, you're right. Yes, you're he right. was. You're right. You're right. No, I'm he, thinking, he, didn't, he didn't go I'm off until a year later. I'm thinking 48. Yeah. Okay. Right. He, and, and he said at the time, 
Under our Constitution, the freedom to marry or not marry a person of, an, of another race resides with the individual and cannot be infringed by the state. When do you think that there will be a consensus about that in this country when it comes to gay marriage? You know, my, my guess is as good as any's, I guess. When you say a consensus among the states and society, I'm not sure if it'll happen in, in, in my lifetime. Uh, you know, I was born in 1948, and I was thinking when you're talking about the case of, about Perez versus Sharp, mm -hmm. and that was the landmark uh, California Supreme Court case that preceded Loving versus Virginia, which you're referring to. Right. Uh, so 60 years later, in 2008, our court made its landmark ruling on sexual orientation. I sort of see that as a bookend mm -hmm. in terms of uh, my life experience, and I thought that it would be a firm uh, bookend, and it didn't turn out to be so. So the U.S. Supreme Court was 19 years behind the California Supreme Court in terms of a interracial marriage. Mm -hmm. You know, where are we now? Where are the states now in terms of of uh, sexual orientation uh, and gay marriage? Where are there now five states, I think, that have, have adopted it? Mm -hmm. uh, when we as a nation will uh, adopt it legally? I, I think the, the legal change is going to come before the societal change. My, my reading uh, indicates that even in 1948 and even in 1967, if you took a popular poll, most people were still against interracial marriage. Those numbers seem to be changing, at least in, in California, the last poll uh, that I saw. So right. whether society will change first or the law will change, I think is a close guess, but I'm, I'm hoping that the law will uh, take the lead as it did uh, with respect to uh, interracial marriage. Next year, the issue may come up on the ballot again, and next year you're, you and two of your colleagues mm -hmm. are facing a retention election. Does that make you nervous at all? I think about it, but I don't, I don't think that it's the proverbial uh, crocodile in the bathtub that uh, Justice Otto Kaus used to talk about. He was asked, well, you're making all these uh, decisions affecting public policy and public opinion and so forth, and he tries not to think about uh, retention elections where the, the court justices are on the ballot every 12 years. And he said he simply couldn't, while shaving, doing his work, not, he couldn't ignore the crocodile in, in the bathtub, which is public opinion. I think that, I mean, I've done a pretty good job of not, you know, considering uh, that. It's certainly something that I don't think judges should uh, consider, although we're all human beings subject to the same uh, pressures and biases and so forth that everyone else is in a general sense. So, you know, what, what can I say? It is a consideration, but it's not something that would ever dictate how I would resolve uh, a case. And I, I don't think that, you know, what happened in our uh, state in 1986 with the removal of uh, Chief Justice Byrd and Justice Reynoso and uh, Grodin on, on the death penalty uh, positions they had taken, that something like that could could happen again. Certainly we're all more prepared uh, to mount a campaign if there was any inkling of, of a campaign being raised against any one of the judges. Mm -hmm. And because the court has, has said yes to gay marriage and then no because of the constitutional amendment, I don't know if the public is really going to feel that they can, they're going to want to take it out in the court. Well, only time will tell. Right. 
Speaking of the death penalty, the uh, Chief Justice, um, Ron George, among others, um, has said that the death penalty system in California is, is dysfunctional. There's been a variety of uh, changes proposed, you know, greater mm -hmm. funding of defense lawyers. Uh, California is in this odd position of having the largest death row in the, in, in the country by quite a bit, mm -hmm. but having very few executions. Um, it's almost like the state's a bit schizophrenic about the death penalty. Right. What, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I, I think that uh, it's a shame that, you know, if we do have a death penalty, that we're not willing to, to fund it properly. We're not willing to put the time and money into funding the lawyers who handle uh, the cases. And I'm not just talking about the lawyers who, who defend uh, the defendants, but we're talking about the resources of the attorney general, the district attorneys, and so forth. So I'm putting aside how much it costs to house the 680 inmates who are on death row. It's an enormous, enormous expense, and the delays are just unconscionable. Uh, but as you say, we are schizophrenic. We, 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 we really don't have uh, a death penalty, uh, in fact, when we've only had 13 executions, I think, since the uh, mid-'80s or something. Right. Since, and in fact, and the law was reinstated even before that. Yeah. So the, the, the leading cause of death on, on death row is, is uh, old age, natural causes. Uh, the second leading cause is suicide. And the third uh, cause is, uh, is actual uh, execution. So it is a dysfunctional uh, system. Uh, the court has, has made various proposals to various committees and so forth, but given the dire economic uh, straits that we're in now, it doesn't seem that that's ever going to gain any, any traction. One report uh, I read recently was that having the death penalty in California costs in excess of $100 million, uh, more so than it would if we simply had life without parole sentences. And then the delay, of course, is caused by the lack of attorneys, the resources it consumes on our court. 25% of our workload is death penalty related. Uh, and then the, the attendant habeas that comes after a judgment is, is affirmed, and then all the federal remedies. So that uh, the time from, from judgment to ultimate execution, if there is that, is in excess of 20 years. I heard you say once that, you, that the process of um, that you and your wife went through to uh, adopt um, Heather, this young woman mm -hmm. who had autism and other problems, taught you a lot about the legal system and how the healthcare system works in this country. And obviously, we're in the midst of a great national discussion now mm -hmm. about reforming healthcare. Could you talk a little bit about that experience and what you learned from it? All right. Well, what I, what I learned is that. Uh, while on the one hand we have uh, wonderful laws that in theory uh, set out to, uh, to protect and to provide services and supports for the disabled, that in reality the supports and services are not there, the money's not there, and that in order to, uh, to obtain access to those uh, supports and services under the law, one really has to be schooled in the law, one has to be uh, persistent, one has to be able to navigate through a maze of very complicated regulations and, and procedures. And what you're probably referring to is uh, maybe a talk I, I gave at some point where I said that uh, where uh, even on a good day, I know a little bit about the law, 
<laughs> but finding uh, to be able to obtain uh, educational services, Medi-Cal, Social Security, uh, health insurance, uh, respite care, uh, you know, the whole panoply of services that uh, a young girl would need in, in her condition was very difficult for even someone like me who knows something about the law, who's able to take time off from work, who has a fax machine, uh, who has a secretary to assist, uh, who knows how to negotiate and explain what the law is to the bureaucrats who might not fully know it. Uh, so if it was difficult for someone like me to, to access those services, think of how difficult it is for someone who doesn't speak the language, who doesn't have access to the resources uh, that I did, someone who perhaps is mentally ill uh, and who really desperately needs the services but simply can't uh, in no way access those services. So the, uh, the contrast is quite dramatic. So that's why one of the things that I've done on our court is to be an advocate for, for greater access to justice and to support groups like Neighborhood Legal Services, I see Neil Dedowitz here, whose primary mission is to provide those kinds of services uh, to poor people in, in Los Angeles. Sometimes proceedings in courts go slowly and move along in a sort of orderly manner, and then sometimes judges are confronted with situations where they're asked to do something fairly fast mm -hmm. when people are in fairly dramatic or perhaps even dire circumstances. And mm -hmm. nearly a decade ago, when you were on the federal bench, um, you were faced um, with a situation which I know at least the group of plaintiffs in a case felt was pretty dire. Um, a group of uh, workers at a jewelry factory in Gardena had voted to uh, have a, uh, a union. And during the course of the uh, campaign, the employer had uh, threatened to uh, move uh, the factory where the work where the jewelry was being done to mm -hmm. to Mexico if the workers voted to unionize this was a not this was a fairly common phenomenon over the past oh I don't know years I mm -hmm. mean companies first moving to the south and then maybe moving to Mexico or moving to Malaysia or China and you and and the National Labor Relations Board uh, filed a petition on behalf of these people mm -hmm. and said that uh, they were being treated unfairly and uh, that they needed some assistance. And you rendered a decision that the Los Angeles Times <laughs> used a word that I have rarely seen in a Los Angeles Times story. They called your decision astounding. Could you uh, talk a little bit about what you did in that case? Well. <laughs> and, it wasn't, and it wasn't unkind. Right. No, that's, uh, I'm very proud of that case, by the way. That's uh, Aguayo versus NLRB involving uh, uh, Quadratech. Quadratech, It yes. was a, a jewelry factory down in uh, Gardena. Right. Uh, that employed about 200 uh, Latina women in, in, a, uh, in a, a setting that reminded me of Norma Ray, because I think the whole union effort really dealt with a woman who simply wanted a stool. I'm not sure if I'm confusing right. it with Norma Ray, but I think she, this was all over right. a stool. Right. Uh, but she She'd also, been hurt and she wanted a place to sit down. Is that yeah. okay? You're yeah. more familiar. Yeah. More, and uh, as a result of that, I think cards, union cards were signed and union effort began. Uh, and the employer, who I think was a Hungarian uh, immigrant, uh, made certain threatening uh, statements uh, to the workers that if this, is, if this was going to happen, then he was going to move the entire kit and caboodle and factory down to Tijuana. And in fact, it already started having the trucks move 
the equipment and materials and everything uh, to, to Mexico. Uh, so that came to us in the form of a request for a temporary restraining order to stop the trucks from uh, moving to Mexico and to also to order them back. So it was a quite compelling case. I mean, it was a blatant violation. And uh, there was some very uh, compelling evidence that was really undisputed that this is what he said. I don't think he was familiar with American law or, or uh, you know, what constituted an unfair labor uh, practice in the first place. So in terms of the, the legal ruling I had to make, it was quite on all fours. And there was nothing radical about that. What was radical was that first the NLRB actually brought a complaint on pretty egregious facts. I think Julie Gutman was the attorney for the NLRB. She was now with the was with the mayor's office, I mean. right? And that uh, I actually ordered uh, them to come back, which they did. So I mean, it was pretty remarkable. Uh, it was probably one of the more remarkable cases that I've had on, th on the district court. I think it was the first time a judge in the United States had ever. Oh said that a company couldn't do what this company was going to do at the time. Um, so clearly you're, you were proud of that decision. I know you're, you're proud of the, of, the, uh, of the dissent that you uh, wrote in the, uh, in the, in the Prop 8 case. Mm -hmm. so there, are there any other of the cases that you've worked on that you feel like were you know, particularly singular or noteworthy that you feel particularly proud of? Well, there's so many, Henry. <laughs> <laughs> well, give us one or two. Well... <laughs> I mean, I can talk about my class action arbitration uh, cases. I mean, Gentry and uh, Discover Bank. You know, these little uh, forms you get with your credit card statements that say you're giving up all your rights and you're subjecting yourself to arbitration. Many of these agreements, surprise, surprise, are one-sided. Uh, so I've, uh, in a couple of cases, and I think Discover Bank dealt with that situation, finding that those could, could be unconscionable. Uh, gentry involved, I think, uh, wage claims of actually several thousand dollars. Uh, I think it involved Circuit City. And uh, an employee giving up certain rights uh, to jury trial, et cetera. And that they uh, said they couldn't get together right in a class action, a class which would action. make it very difficult for an individual and, and, to bring and a case. And in today's legal uh, climate and what things cost, I mean, someone really can't take a big company to court over four or five thousand dollars of unpaid wages. So I found that the class action arbitration waiver there was also unlawful. I mean, there, there, there are other uh, cases that I'm proud of. You mentioned the, the trilogy of lesbian uh, mother cases. Uh, the most interesting case, I think, uh, was the KM uh, factual situation that involved uh, two women who'd been in a very intimate relationship for several years and uh, had offspring the offspring was the genetic product of one partner, and the other partner was the uh, birth mother. So you had two very competing uh, interests and legal documents and so forth. Uh, and although the, the donor uh, egg mom, the genetic mother, had waived certain rights, I found that the uh, agreement that she had signed was against public policy, and therefore she could assert her rights against the, the birth mother who uh, was trying to keep the genetic mother uh, away from kids who uh, they had raised together. That's kind of a controversial case. It was a five to two decision uh, on our, four to two on our, on our court. I think we had 
uh, Justice Brown was no longer in the court then. Uh, I'm also very happy, I'm very proud of the Kopke case that also dealt with the Domestic Partnership Act involving family club memberships down in a country club in San Diego. And uh, the club would only recognize traditional family that's constituting as being eligible for family memberships and did not recognize that uh, two domestic partners could also constitute a family. So I found that their uh, denial of family memberships to a domestic partnership was also unlawful under the Unruh Act. Right. So. Could you talk a little bit about what the differences are between being on an you were on three times, you had three positions as a trial judge mm -hmm. where you're kind of on the firing line, you're having to make rulings all the time on evidence right away. And, right. And, but, you're, but you're the king of your court. And now you're on a court where you're, there are seven of you. Obviously, the magic number on the California Supreme three. Court is uh, four. Four. I, I need three votes. Right. In addition to my own. You need to get three other votes. So yeah. talk a little bit about the differences of what what that's like. Well, I think your, your characterization of the, the role of the trial judge is, is, uh, is on point. I mean, you really, you can't do anything you want, but you have to do it within the constraints of the law. But in terms of making up your mind, once you've made up your mind, then you go with that uh, decision. On, on a uh, appellate court where you have three judges or, 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 or seven, as we do on our court, uh, with the Court of Appeal, you just have to persuade one person to agree with you. That's much easier than trying to get three people to agree with you. So there's a little bit more, uh, I think, uh, negotiating, give and take, and accommodating. Uh, I think it results in the opinions being a little narrower than you might want in the first place. Uh, I think our court currently uh, has a, uh, an atmosphere of <clears throat> trying to accommodate and trying to get as many votes as we can uh, to agree to a certain uh, uh, result. If you follow the U.S. Supreme Court at all, you practically need a spreadsheet to figure out on the many issues decided in one opinion, you know, where, where do you have majorities on different points of view. We try to avoid that, like the plague, if we can. So you'll find that our decisions are, are, are pretty uniform and not too hard to figure out in terms of trying to figure out how this justice, you know, uh, wh how did they vote on a particular aspect uh, of an opinion. So uh, generally, I think we, we try to accommodate. We try to reach uh, a consensus. Uh, but it is a bit more uh, political in nature, I think you might say, in terms of getting uh, other people to agree with you. Do you. And as a consequence, do you think that that can have some limitations on sort of coming up with things that are pretty sweeping. I mean, there was a period when the California Supreme Court was clearly considered the premier state Supreme Court in the country when Roger Traynor was the chief justice mm -hmm. and then passed that. And then obviously the court went through a period of great turmoil, mm -hmm. which you referred to mm -hmm. um, uh, a little while ago when the three judges, uh, Rose Bird and Cruz Renoso and Joe Groden, were, were voted out mm -hmm. in 1986. Do you feel like the courts, I don't know, come back to equal poise, or how do, you, how do you view where the court is now? Well, you know, there was a recent uh, Law Review article in the UC Davis uh, Law Review that tracked the history of the court, I think from the 1940s up until the present. And that court, I mean, that Law Review found that uh, our Supreme Court was still the most followed state Supreme Court in the country. 
in instances where one of our decisions had been followed three or more times by other Supreme Courts, the number was something like 1,200, way, way more than the next uh, state Supreme Court. In terms of being followed five or more times, which is a very high number, not just cited, but followed, right. we were around three or 400, and again, well ahead of any other state. So I think we're still the premier state uh, Supreme Court uh, you know, your question sort of implied that, well, if we're trying to accommodate, is there less uh, avenue for creativity or for uh, far-reaching uh, decisions? You know, I think our first marriage case uh, disproves that. I think that uh, given the right uh, kind of case, the right issue, I think we're willing to, you know, to take the lead. I think we're still doing it. With more to come? In other let me, areas, let me think. Uh, I, <laughs> I'm thinking next term. No, there, there's more to come. I mean, California is such an engaging state uh, in terms of its population, its industry, the issues. So I still think that. Uh, I mean, if you travel anywhere in this country, I mean, people still have a great regard for for the things that come out of this state, and I think that applies equally to to the law that comes out of this state. And I take it you'd like to keep doing this for a while. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good job. Good. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. I okay. think we're going to now take some questions. All right. My name is Carol Hamilton. Oh. And I'm just curious how you go about persuading uh, other members of the court to agree with you when you're writing an opinion uh, or if you end up writing a concurring opinion. Is there a strategy that you used to... <laughs> get people to agree with your points of view? Well, you know, that's for me, Henry. <laughs> uh, you know, Carol, I don't think that there's any one particular uh, strategy. Of course, try to use the power of persuasion, power of the law. You try to show trends uh, as to where the law is in our state and perhaps even in, in other uh, states. Uh, a lot of what we do, I just mentioned, we try to accommodate if there's something that a justice says, you know, well, I like uh, what you're saying, what you're doing here, but wouldn't this be a better approach to say it this way or to cite this case? Uh, we have a lot of dialogue uh, before a case is even set for oral argument, and that dialogue continues even after oral argument. Uh, so unlike uh, the federal courts, like the Ninth Circuit of the U.S. Supreme Court, there's virtually little sharing of uh, a chamber's position with the other justice, uh, the other chambers, so that when you get to oral argument, you really don't know where, the, where your other justices are coming from. And I think once they've invested so much time and effort in a particular position, there's less willingness to accommodate or to change that position. We work from the perspective that we'd like to get as many votes as we can uh, from the very beginning, and we're willing to, to, to make the necessary changes. Now, that may lead to uh, maybe a decision not being as, as sweeping as Henry referred to. It may be more narrow. Uh, but generally, I think that, at least I'm of the belief, that the law should develop incrementally. And if you can't take off a big bite, we take off a small bite. And there'll always be a next case coming down the road where the law can then grow 
in, in that direction. I have a question up to your right here. Issa K. Mixon. Uh, you indicated diversity on courts is, is very uh, necessary and profound mm -hmm. in implication. Would you comment on the decisions from Cla uh, Clarence Thomas? <laughs> well, you know, uh, he, I mean, he's widely regarded as the most conservative justice uh, on the court, and he has a certain perspective about uh, the law and the original text and and so forth. Uh, I guess, you know, suffice it to say that he and I are probably at, on different ends of the spectrum. But without focusing on a particular case, I, I wouldn't, you know, know what to say. I, I do say that his, his, his autobiography is fascinating if you want some insight into the man. I have read that book and it's kind of scary. <laughs> Mm -hmm. We have a question to your far, far left. I hope I... <laughs> Hi, my name is Dennis Shia, and my question is, given the intent of public benefits and other social services to help people, I think it's really sad that often it requires a lawyer to help people navigate the system. Mm -hmm. So given the wide discretion given to administrative agencies, what do you see... Um, as a method of simplifying the system so that it's actually accessible to individuals who are in need of their help. Do you have an answer to that, Henry? I, I think that's for you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I certainly don't have any uh, quick and, and ready answer uh, to that, but I think that uh, agencies should, should make themselves more user-friendly. Uh, they should move in that direction. Uh, having uh, things uh, or information online, uh, having uh, websites, kiosks. I know the court uh, for the last few years has a, a really fabulous self-help center that really is a real cornucopia of, of, of the law for uh, self-represented litigants and even lawyers can go to it to learn how to get a temporary restraining order, uh, domestic violence order, uh, landlord-tenant inf uh, information. Uh, it's available in, in multiple languages. So I think that if, if every agency sort of made it easier uh, for people to, to, to access their services, it certainly would make for a much uh, better uh, society. A lot of that involves creativity and also money, so that can be an impediment. Uh, to that, but I think uh, just having an approach of being more user friendly would certainly work uh, a long way. And also supporting your legal aid societies and agencies that are out there doing uh, God's work, in my opinion. Okay, we have a question over here. Question uh, to your left, yeah. to your right, sorry. Oh. Hi, Justice Moreno. Thank Hi. you, first of all, for your courage in doing the right thing with Prop 8. Uh, my question is you know, we have a um, you know, Ted Olson and, and David Boyce filed that you know, mm -hmm. um, case with the federal court. Do you think we have the votes now, given the makeup of the, the court, the Supreme Court? Um, because there's a lot of fight yeah. in the gay community. Yeah, I, I would say no. Uh, but I can't, I can't, my canon of ethics prohibits me from commenting on any kind of pending case. So, but if your question is, do I think the current U.S. Supreme Court and what the prospects are, I wouldn't say they're very good. Hi, I'm Neil Broverman. He actually stole my question. So um, I'll <laughs> ask a, a, another one. Uh, 
it's a little contentious. Do you, do you think that just your decision in Prop 8, do you think that costs you a Supreme Court nomination? Uh, absolutely not. Hi, my name is Nestor, and um, I, I, I really appreciate you coming up and presenting yourself. And I wasn't aware of your stature and history and all. So I really appreciate what you've done so far. And I had just two simple questions. One was on the, on the, on the passage of a bill, which was SV 211 um, that currently passed. Like, and uh, what's your take on that? And, uh, and another question of, uh, of great importance to me is like, with the current case on services being cut and all that, um, the foster care system, knowing that uh, it has been providing some services that have been lacking and all, and mm -hmm. with the budget crisis and all that, what would you want to see the foster care system do, especially since you're on the board, I mean the council, for the Blue Ribbon uh, children? Right. Well, I'm the chair of the, of the uh, California Blue Ribbon Commission on Foster Care, which is a a uh, judiciary-sponsored commission, but I'm also co-chair of something known as the Child Welfare uh, Council. Both of them are multi-disciplinary uh, uh, commissions that are focusing on foster care, and uh, the latest reductions in, uh, uh, in child welfare are just uh, disastrous. I just got off the phone when I was flying down here from San Francisco today with uh, Kim Belshay, who's the Secretary of Health and Human Services. We, we co-chair this committee together, and she was just, you know, very uh, sad and upset about the cuts that uh, the governor made uh, yesterday, because she, what she related to me was that, in effect, uh, the state was uh, withholding or not going to make funding available for what amounted to about 900 social workers statewide, and that's going to have a tremendous impact on, on child welfare throughout uh, the state. What's particularly sad is if you look at all the other cuts that were made, they all involve uh, the poor uh, and disabled people of our, of our state and, and children. So I don't, believe me, I don't have an answer. Uh, but it's, it's just unfortunate that when the cuts are made, they, they're made against the most uh, vulnerable. And I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with SB uh, 211, but could you tell me what that is? I don't have a position on it. Uh, something to do with SB uh, X211 about retroactive uh, uh, immunity towards justices and all that about, you know, illegal fees or payments. So yeah, just I, wanted to know more about that. I have no opinion. Okay. I, no, I don't know what it is. All the way to your right in the back here. Mm -hmm. um, your Honor, my name is Robin Tyler. This is my wife, Diane Olson. Mm -hmm. We were the couple that sued right. for marriage equality. And also to overturn yeah. Prop 8, our attorney was Gloria Allred. Represented by Gloria Allred, right. We, we, yeah, she's sitting here. We came here. I, I will give you my That's question. Right. <laughs> we want to thank you for your courage and, and also for, for do, making us a suspect class, and especially for your courage the second time uh, for having that dissenting vote. You will go down in history as a hero for equal rights. Um, my question is, and I'm not sure, I'm not an attorney, so I'm not sure if you can answer this mm -hmm. in the affirmative, but we'd like to take you to lunch. Which oh. You can see my agent. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll decline that. Okay. Uh, Kenneth Silk, I wondered uh, what are your thoughts and experiences 
uh, regarding television, since the court did, uh, did allow live television, uh, the uh, argument on the marriage cases, mm -hmm. and also based on that, do you see any justification for the U.S. Supreme Court uh, being so adamant in, in refusing to allow any television? Uh, yeah, I don't see any justification for not allowing television. I've always allowed uh, cameras in, in my court uh, when I was on the trial bench, and uh, I've always voted in favor of it uh, when a request has been uh, made under the applicable rules to have uh, our proceedings uh, televised. I think the feelings, at least on our court, are, 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 are in favor of having uh, cameras in the courtroom because we think they really serve a great educational uh, function. Look at how many people watched uh, the, the marriage uh, and the Prop 8 uh, arguments. I think it really does a great uh, public service. And I think we're getting over the, the you know, the O.J. Simpson, Lance Ito uh, episode. I mean, that, that created a lot of negative feelings among judges, to tell you the truth. I was in the criminal courts building as a judge when that trial was going on, and uh, I did have a camera in my courtroom on a on a domestic homicide, and uh, just in contrast to what was going on on the ninth floor. And uh, no one else was in, in the courtroom watching uh, my trial. Uh, but it just showed the disparity of, uh, but I think overall, uh, I think the U.S. Supreme Court, and I think ultimately they will allow uh, cameras. Currently they do broadcast the arguments, I think immediately after the close of arguments. I think they're moving in the right direction. Another question to your left. Um, hi, Justice. Um, my name is Joe Matthews. I wanted to ask uh, if you could comment on all this commentary we're hearing about the need for uh, a very different uh, uh, California Constitution, uh, mm -hmm. perhaps achieved through a constitutional convention. Um, and also sort of specifically within that, if you could, if is, there's been a lot of talk about fixes in the legislative branch. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you see anything in the judicial branch in our Constitution that is, needs fixing? You know, I think a couple of years ago there was, uh, I think the judges are covered under Article 6 of the Constitution and there was some uh, talk about uh, trying to strengthen certain uh, provisions there that would help maintain the impartiality of the courts. Uh, it didn't get anywhere, but they were talking about longer terms uh, for trial judges, uh, maybe retention elections as opposed to outright elections for uh, trial judges. And there were some other reforms that don't come to mind uh, right now. So uh, I really don't have a particular opinion uh, right now on, on the Constitutional Convention uh, question generally or how it might impact uh, revisions in, in our judiciary. We have a question to your right, right over here. Okay. This is another judge who's asking me a question. <laughs> Justice Moreno. David Cunningham. <laughs> thank you. Justice Moreno, first I want to thank you for your commitment to fairness and equality and justice. My question is actually a follow-up to that, which is what measures do you think can be employed, if any, to enhance the independence of the courts in California? Well, I mean, I think... You know, a adequate funding, I think, is always uh, something that uh, the courts are always uh, lacking. Uh, I actually think that we have a pretty good uh, system in California. Having 
uh, traveled a little bit with, among meeting other judges in other states where they have outright elections for uh, not only trial court judges, but for appellate judges and their state Supreme Courts. So I think since 1933 or so, we've had the system where uh, you know, judges in California are, are pretty much appointed by, I think 98% of the time by, by the governor. Uh, the elect election system, I think, serves as an adequate safety valve uh, so the public can, can speak up with respect to trial judges. The 12-year term for appellate judges, I think, is, is it's not lifetime, which I had, but I think it's, it's adequate. It also gives the public uh, an opportunity to, to remove a judge if, if that's uh, appropriate. Uh, there's some concerns there that uh, a, an interest group can decide to, to challenge a judge, not with a candidate, but with an issue. Uh, so it's, by, it's not a, a perfect system uh, at all, but I think we really have to educate uh, our public about the kind of work uh, that we do. You know, by and large, I think people in our country, at least, or in this state anyway, respect uh, the work that we do as judges, and that's not the case in so many other states. So uh, I probably haven't answered uh, your question. You know that we do have a commission on impartiality that's headed by uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Justice uh, Chin, uh, but my understanding is that when they're looking at, uh, at the issue, uh, they're finding that you know, California can use some improvements, but we're way, way ahead of the other states. We have a question in the middle to the back. Hello, my name is Fred DeShiel, and there are some members of our community who may have been overlooked to some extent. Uh, these are the young folks who came here who weren't born here, mm -hmm. have been educated in California. We've given them diplomas. Maybe they've gone to colleges in California, but no, they're, they're not documented, and I was just wondering, if you think that they have any rights or any legal rights aside from their moral rights that we might have to them. You know, that issue is so close to a case that's currently pending uh, before us uh, that I, I would, uh, I, I cannot answer that question. I think the case that we have, I don't remember the name, but it's the three-year rule. If you've been here for three years in high school, you're entitled to resident tuition. Uh, so I really, since I'm going to have to vote on that at some point in the next year, I, I really shouldn't answer that question. Thank you. My name is Camilo Romero. I look forward to your vote on that pending case soon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm already being lobbied. <laughs> Perhaps your lunch can follow theirs. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had a question particularly in regards to, well, first, thank you again, the fact that there's role models like you and certainly Judge Sotelo to my right that as an entering law student encourages me for these next three years and, and the course to come. And I was curious to find out if the case that was mentioned on Quadratech and Gardena, yeah. mm -hmm. if that may somehow establish a precedent with the case that I've been working on as a member of our union where workers in Colombia have filed lawsuit in the U.S. court under the Alien Tort Claims Act for mm -hmm. violence by the Coca-Cola company yeah. against members of our union. Is there any possibility of that fact? Well, I, I can't give legal advice, but it seems totally remote. 
and unconnected. Thank you so much for joining us. And on behalf of Sokola Public Square, we do want to thank the California Endowment for hosting us tonight. Please join us at the reception. Thank you.